Hi, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Tara Humphrey. I run an award-winning healthcare consultancy specialising in supporting primary care networks. I'm a facilitator. I am a mum of three. I have an MBA and I would class myself as a bit of an adventurer. And I absolutely love all things business, all things leadership, all things management. So I created this podcast for clinical and non-clinical colleagues working in the field of health and care and for those of you looking to develop your leadership skills. Every week we release an episode which focuses on the hard and soft skills required to lead in this increasingly complex environment as we move to delivering more integrated care. So let's jump into this week's episode. Hey, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I hope you guys are doing well. So it's my absolute pleasure to present to you this conversation with Amy Robson. Amy is the Deputy Director of Personalised Care at NHS England. In this conversation, Amy shares with us what is personalised care, why it is so important, and how she is bringing this to life. Enjoy another an amazing leadership podcast. Um, I hope you enjoy. I know you will enjoy. And I'll see you in the next episode. Hey, Amy, thank you so much for joining me today on the Business of Healthcare podcast. I'm good, thank you. How are you? Thank you for having me. My pleasure, my pleasure. So our paths crossed on Twitter and I had been following you for a while and I'd been meaning to reach out to you for ages, but imposter syndrome got in the way. And then I finally plucked up the courage and you kindly said yes to coming on. And I wanted to speak to you because I wanted to get a greater insight into the role of an NHS executive. So could you share with our audience a little bit about who you are and what you do today? Cool, no problem. So um, I'm Amy Robson. I'm the Deputy Director of Personalised Care at NHS England Improvement. I work in a national role. I'm a physiotherapist by clinical background. I've not been practicing clinically for the last three years. Um, so my, my job is largely around responsibility of delivering the policy commitments and the long-term plan towards personalized care. And my portfolio specifically covers those areas clinically, those areas regarding workforce and those areas regarding lived experience. Um, so we know that um, the long-term plan outlined that personalized care would be one of the main changes in how care gets delivered or bringing that to life. Um, although personalized care itself isn't new, it's not a new concept, it's not a new construct, but it was very um, beneficial to have that. So, um, explicitly stated in the long-term plan to give it that focus because we know there's a contrast between um, what we think of personalized care and the reality of that actually happening so that every people population system feels the benefit from that. So what that means for different arms of my team is that I work in the clinical arm of the team working to support different national clinical programs in NHS England improvement um, around how they design their policies and strategies across um, a number of different, different disease pathways or um, 
functional areas of the NHS. Um, so that's very interesting. I have a lovely team of national clinical advisors who are embedded in different programs to do that, to help support those, um, those teams. Um, and the workforce aspect, we know that um, the knowledge, skills and confidence of being able to actually deliver personalized care um, can be tricky. Um, and so we've stood up a national commission around the training content, um, how that gets delivered and how that gets engineered into different workforce strategies, et cetera. So there's a lot around working with different stakeholders like HEE and um, I'm the SRO for the Personalized Care Institute, which curates and maintains the yeah. content for personalized care training for the workforce of the NHS. Um, and then the lived experience arm of our team is, is also really important because we know that the voices of people, but the knowledge, skills, and confidence of their ability to be involved in co-production and co-design or patient involvement activities doesn't just happen on its own. So their responsibility is around supporting people to develop those leadership skills to be able to step into co-productive spaces, um, both in NHS England and improvement, but also in provider ICSs and, and other functional areas. So it's a fun, fun portfolio, really rich. Um, I also have responsibility for three of the additional roles reimbursement scheme roles, which I think will be really relevant to your audience. Um, um, largely in primary care because of the way that the ARS mechanism works. So social prescribing link workers, care coordinators and health and wellbeing coaches and the infrastructure that makes those new, I say new with quotes, roles um, embedded, safe, um, deliver the best quality and importantly increase capacity in general practice, which is what the, the ARS scheme was all about. So there's something really interesting about that arm of the portfolio as well in terms of how do you make a new profession emerge and thrive and grow and deliver? So that's that's also really good fun. That's probably it in a nutshell. That's my the breadth of my work. It's huge. And who is Amy? Your home life, what you do in your spare time, like just the, the personal side of you. Cool. So I'm I'm Amy. I live in Newcastle, <laughs> I live up north. Um, I'm American. Um, I am a mother, I have a five-year-old daughter. Um, so balancing work life, busy work life with family life is tricky, but really important to me. Um, I'm very silly. I like um, I like doing things outside. It, that's really important to me. It gives me lots of joy, lo lots of life satisfaction and keeps me balanced, I think in terms of my, the serious nature of the job, because you know, it's hard work and um, these other things keep, keep, me, um, keep me well-rounded, but are also really important to me. Um, I'm really creative. I like gardening and sport and things like that. So yeah, just try, try to stay balanced with a full family and work life. That's, that's me in a nutshell. What sport do you like? What sport? Yeah. I played, I played quite high level soccer in the U S um, when I was younger before I injured my knee. So I enjoy playing soccer or football, but I don't like watching it, but I do like playing it. I haven't played in about 15 years though, because of a knee injury. Um, do like playing it, do lots of hill walking. I do yoga, probably the big one spinning. So cool. just anything to keep me active. So how did you get from the States semi, you know, potential professional athlete to the NHS deputy director of personalized care? <laughs> um, I, I trained as a physio in the U S and I got married and moved over to the UK um, almost immediately after graduating. And I didn't have a job. I had to find my way. And it was, it was really tricky, actually. And the reason I laugh about that is that um, the US has a really different 
education system for healthcare in that I had um, a really different degree qualification. And so I felt like a real square peg in a round hole. So physio in the US it, at the time was a seven year master's degree at, at entry level. And in the UK, it's a three year bachelor's. Um, and so when I was applying for jobs, it was really hard because I was overqualified, according to people for some things and not qualified enough for others. So it really took me a while to find my stride when I moved here, which was really tricky, actually. And as a result of that, I had heart, my heart and mind on what I the type of job I would have loved to have had. And I didn't end up in it because you have to cut your teeth with the skills that you learned at uni and, and start to get into it. So I've ended up in a really different clinical specialism than I thought I would when I was at uni. But, you know, the pragmatist in me just got on with it. So I worked in um, I worked in MSK and orthopedics. I worked in ED, um, trauma and elective orthopedics, and then um, worked in advanced practice physio. It was just really exploratory about what things I learned and how I grew. And I, I took on a number of different um, people leadership responsibilities, including line managing more than my profession. So that was really interesting milestone, I think, because what it made me so aware of is the things that are the same and the things that are different. And there's more things that are the same than there are different. So I used to line manage um, doctors. I used to line manage orthopedic surgeons, sports and exercise medicine consultants and GPs with a special interest. And that was super interesting. Um, you know, the humble physio, like trying to line manage uh, an, an orthopedic surgeon who was, um, you know, that doctor, non-doctor dynamic still feels a thing. And interestingly, they were all also men. So then there was also a really interesting gender dynamic of like, you know, am I, am I worthy of line managing you? <laughs> um, but yeah, not in terms of the gender, but in terms of the doctor, non-doctor bit. So that was really interesting. And I learned a lot about myself and people leadership at that time. But I loved the bits of that that were the same about the workforce. Like there's actually, we all we all want to like help people to get better. So, but we just yeah. have different yeah. strings to our bow. So there's, I think there's something to be said for multi-professional leadership of workforce because um, there is so much more the same than there's different. Um, after that, I ended up taking a sort of spin into my career of operational management. I managed some contracts. I learned a lot about that. I didn't like it. I was good at it, but I didn't like it. What did you um, not like about it? It didn't fill me with joy. I found it hard work. It didn't feel like I had to work harder at my strengths in that area. I could do it, but it like took more battery power for me. And I wanted to sit it out because I didn't want to be complacent, lazy, or maybe just like, oh no, I don't like this. Um, but I gave it a good amount of time. And on you know a good couple of years into it, I realized that although I had honed the craft of understanding how to operationally lead a service, I was splitting myself into too many things. And actually there were parts of my job that actually I really liked and bits that I didn't. And it was the operational leadership that I, I, I didn't actually enjoy as much. I feel like everything you say is like podcast subject in itself. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I, one of the things I just wanted to pick up on is where you've, there is this hierarchy and where you started to take on roles where you line manage more than your profession. And you mentioned, you know, like, am I worthy to manage, you know, like a different discipline because they're a consultant and you're not. When you applied, for, you know, what made you, when you think of that particular job, what made you apply for it? And then the second bit is how did you overcome, can I do this? Should I do it? 
what was interesting is that it wasn't quite as black and white as that because it was it, I had the responsibility for for the delivery of the service and a portion of that was the professional leadership of the people within that and then during that time we had the specification for the contract of like this is the skill mix of the people you can employ x amount of this type y amount of that type or that sort of thing so you get the right skill mix of the workforce and when it then came to figuring out so when i said yes i don't think i knew that that was part of it if that makes I sense <laughs> so, um, i sort of in some ways slept walked into it but i don't mind that i don't say that with any degree of regret um, or feeling lazy about it because actually i learned yeah I, i'm happy and i'm really grateful for having done that and actually not being not overthinking thinking the decision about that so i feel actually a little bit grateful that i didn't realize okay <laughs> how did i overcome it i think it was just really relational i had to i had to learn i had to find find a way of um uh, what i was really grateful for is that what we started with those people knew me people I was line managing I had I knew them we'd worked together but in a different context so we started from a great place of mutual respect and their res they, they could tell I was uncomfortable with it as well so like they they were very open about offering their their the mutual respect bit so we started from a really really great place I had to kind of agree and explore ways of how can I add value to you and not I'm there's a difference between supporting someone to grow and then feeling that you need to be more expert than them. I wasn't there to be more expert than them. I was just I about was... to say that. I was just about to say, when you are line managing a multi-professional team, I think there is, for some people, there is the need to think, not to become a pharmacist, not to become an FCP, not to become a social prescriber, but you really want to know like so much. And it probably comes with time. You don't have to force it. As long as you're talking to your team, you will you will pick up that and you have your one-to-ones and things like that. But I think sometimes it can be quite daunting thinking what, what you know, like what you all do and how do you all fit together? It comes with time. Definitely. And, and curiosity and open-mindedness and talking about ways of working. You know, I had to, I remember I said to a couple of GPs with special interest, I was like, I'm not going to teach you how to be a better doctor. I'm not here to do that. But like, you know this and I know this and how do you what how do you want me to how can I add greatest value to your work and be really open-minded about it and I was really surprised by the types of answers and the varied answers that I got but starting it with that starting from that place of mutual respect was really helpful and then slowly building upon that over time um, and hearing their views of how I could add value to them really changed my thinking a bit as well because it helped me to move out of that space of thinking I need to, I need to help teach you how, do you know, there's something different about facilitating them to thrive versus being the expert. I wasn't, I wasn't there to do that. So it was, it was a real critical moment for me in my career, actually. But I, I again, just somehow not slept, walked into it in a bad way, but in a way that it wasn't intentional, but I'm grateful for it. So somebody asked me, you know, like, Tara, what are the skills and, you know, like, what are the, yeah, what are the skills what are the competencies for leadership? And there's so many, there's so many, but one of the things I've been writing, frantically trying to keep up and write down, you use the word, I'm grateful, I'm grateful a lot. There was a time in your career when you said, does this give, bring me joy? You've talked about mutual respect and developing relationships and asking, how can I add value to you? And I would say, I don't hear that language like on a regular basis. 
I don't, I don't think I've ever, no one's ever asked me, Tara, how can I bring more value to you? I mean, what, when you ask those questions, what did, can you give us an example? What did, what was the response? It depended on the person and where they were within their own state of development themselves. And it was really influenced by a number of things, their personality, their confidence or their skill. So some people would ask for things that I was like, you don't need my help with that, but that tells me how underconfident you are. Like you're far more. So there's something different in each of their answers. So where some people were, they were like, I just need you to like, keep me right and make sure that I get all the memos. I was like, that's fine. That's not a problem. I can do that. Um, you know, or I just need, you know, when, when I need help with certain things, I'll come to you. So it was about like agreeing ground rules, whereas other people would be almost overly needy is not quite the right expression. I can't think of a good one off the top of my head, but they're, what they wanted was more a symptom of their lack of confidence than their lack of skill. And so by ask, the reason why I found it so valuable to ask that was partly because I, I really wanted to get under the skin of how do I help these doctors? Yeah, I don't want to make an assumption that I'm meant to like put on a certain facade of what that looks like. Yeah. Um, and and actually, I just realized that it was deeply personal and it had nothing to do with them being a doctor and it had everything to do with how they envisioned themselves in that role and where they were in their development journey. And sometimes I had to shine the light on things that they needed to consider doing differently, which was interesting to help point out. But but most of the time, we, we just needed to agree those ground rules. So it was, I didn't want to make any assumptions, basically, on what, what was important to them. How do you kindly and respectfully not pander to the needy? That sounds really harsh, but you know what I mean. There's something about clarity. There's something about expectations. There's something about supporting, nurturing and kind spaces. Um, There's something about understanding what's underneath the ask of someone who's maybe asking to be pandered. and Mm -hmm. Because there might be a whole bunch of things that are behind why they're behaving that way, that it's important. For, so for example, it might be that someone is needy of time and attention in their workspace because of something that's completely unrelated to it. And it's, and actually they need some time out of work, you know, like the, it might be that it, there might be reasons and I could go and diagnose what I think could be helpful to support them and be completely off track. Um, and then there is a boundary and a line with that in terms of, um, you know, I'm not providing a therapeutic relationship in that context. And are you very clear on that? Is that like, is there, have you ever thought, hang on a minute, this feels like a weekly counselling service? Or do you feel from quite early on, you know what, you know your role, you know your scope of practice, and actually you draw that boundary? Or is it hard? Is it blurred? Kind of shades of grey, but I think... Yeah. Um, I think I have a tolerance for allowing it to be blurry, but that's because I don't think things are always quite, I think that things are shades of gray in that regard, but there's, there's a tipping point by which then I'll move to, I don't like to move to the space of drawing boundaries as my first or default way of being. I'll move to that incrementally as needed, but then if, if that's what's needed, then I can be really, I can, I can do that. I hate doing it, but I, okay. I it's not my natural way of being but I know I know that it's necessary in some circumstances I hope people like a stop you know like I don't know if you remember like the old cassette tapes and you'd like stop start stop start <laughs> um, <laughs> where do you learn those skills 
at varying degrees of well during my career and I've learned the hard way. So I think, so my natural, I, I know what my natural learning style is. I learn best by like listening, reading things, lecture kind of style stuff, but then I also have to really apply it in practice. I also mimic behaviors from people around me and I'm grateful to have had a number of wonderful role models who who did that. They talked the talk and walked the walk and that made it easy for me to emulate that and observe their behavior and how they dealt with tricky situations like that. And I could, I could copy to want of a better expression. But I guess in terms of leadership development, um, uh, I did some leadership modules in my master's degree. I um, did some stuff with the Institute for Leadership and Management on coaching and mentoring. Um, I've not been too rigid about my leadership training and qualifications over my career, probably because I'm really open-minded and, and almost want to learn everything. And therefore that feels too big. And then I take it in a really exploratory way. So I, I learn from doing, I learn from what I see and I learn from what's around me. I have done some formal leadership training. Um, um, Becky Malby's courses are amazing. And I've been on a few that were just absolutely inspiring for me um, in terms of how to thrive and change and how to make change happen and transform but I tend to take things in chunks. So I'll set like goals for myself. If I want, I'd like to notionally do X number of courses in a year or in a few okay. years time. So I kind of take it in chunks. I haven't, I don't, I don't have like a big grand plan about it, but I've also just learned a lot by working with really good people as well. Could you share in layman's terms, what is personalized care? My definition of it is, I think the way in which care gets delivered on a continuum can either be paternalistic at one end of the spectrum, doctor, clinician says what should happen and it does. And the other end of the spectrum being consumerism, where the person says what they want and they get in the absence of what is right and what might be right for them. To me, personalized care is the middle of that continuum and it involves a con a supporting the autonomy of the person. It involves empowering. It involves a shift in power away from away from paternalism towards an equal relationship between the person seeking care and the person that they're seeing the clinician. So to me, and then there's a number of interventions that enable that to happen through conversation or through care delivery or referrals and prescriptions, etc. Why does there need to be like a separate directive and mandate and targets around this? Why is it not integrated? Or I suppose it is integrated, but why is it separate? Why is it not just what we do as care, health and care professionals? Oh, such a good question, Tara. Um, so we know from the evidence that there are some main themes around the barriers of why embedding personalized care is tricky. Um, and it's the work of year of care. So I, you know, it's their, it's their work. It's not, not, not our work. Um, and, but what they really well summarize is those themes. And one is the skills of the workforce. And I don't mean that in a critical way to the workforce. I'm a clinician too. And I'll, I can tell a story about my light bulb moment of, I was thinking I was doing personalized care and I wasn't. Um, so the skills of the workforce is one known barrier. The other is the public being prepared to expect personalized care as default. Some people still expect a deeply paternalistic style of care. Um, and so they aren't always aware of what they should expect in that healthcare context. So skills of the workforce, prepared public, the system infrastructure set up 
to allow that to thrive. So you could have a clinician who's deeply skilled, a person who's ready, but they might have a really convoluted commissioning infrastructure around them that actually disables the ability to connect into their community or, you know, really narrow KPIs around appointment times, things like that. So there's some of that system supportedness. And then the other is the effective commissioning aspect, which is subtly different than supportive infrastructure. So we know that those are the four main barriers to that. Why isn't it happening as it, and how, or how do we, why do we think it should be a separate program? Um, because of the nature, so because of the nature of my portfolio, but, and because we work for most of what we do supporting other NHS England improvement programs, like different national clinical directors um, and national specialist advisors, um, I would almost argue that we're moving into a place where we're not a separate program that we're really engineering into an embedding. So why, how do we know that it's needed? The voices from patient reported experience measures tell us that people aren't experiencing personalized care. So that's the kind of golden nugget at the end of the logic model that says that's what we should be aspiring to is that people tell us back that they're experiencing personalized care. We know that from the CQC PREMS, the patient reported experience measure PREMS insight surveys, um, that you know, five out of 10 people in England feel that they've experienced, they, were, they felt involved in the decisions about their care, five in 10 people. And that's been consistent for the last 10 years. Um, so we might think that we're doing it, but our yeah. people are telling us that we're not. And each of those surveys have about 70,000 people per annum. So it's not small numbers. You know, the data geeks, including myself in that would, you know, do look at it because that's, that's the best litmus test measure for, we might think it's happening. It should be business as usual. And then you mentioned kind of your role or, you know, not your role by yourself. <laughs> our role collectively yeah. is to bring that to life. Yeah. How do you bring it to life? There's lots of questions here. How do you bring it to life when we're all, we're both part of conversations where the workforce is burnt out? There aren't enough, there aren't enough clinicians, there aren't enough staff in general. We've got extended access. You know, like someone said to me, we will never be able to deliver what the public want. We, there just isn't the infrastructure and you know like will there probably isn't the will in certain areas because there's so much so how do you bring it to life how do you motivate us to think this is what we're here to do when they that they want to do it but they feel like their hands are tied so I such a good question I could answer that on so many levels but I guess what's coming to my mind is me on as a, as a clinician and my light bulb moment about it so I again thought that I was I remember doing a training session with some with a team around shared decision making, and they were learning a whole bunch of ways to have a conversation with a person because that's what shared decision making does is it kind of encourages that paternalism, consumerism, middle of that continuum through the way in which we ask questions. And I remember somebody asking like, oh, I'm just gonna have to fit all this into the other things that I ask. And, you know, and my challenge to that was, um, if we're not asking people what's important to them, what's the point in the rest of the questions that we're asking? So it isn't something else to be adding in. It's something that should form the core part of that and our skills as clinicians to be agile enough to work in that way is, is what this, these skills are all about. Now, 
I remember when I looked at my patient reported experience measures um, on shared decision making, I thought that I, and I had been, when I was working in orthopedics, I had been consenting people for knee replacements and bunion surgery. And I'd been you know, signing the consent form, making the shared decision with them. I'd been doing that for years. And when I looked at the PREMS data, pa patients don't tell you in front of you that they didn't feel included. So like, I thought I was pretty good at it. I mean, it wasn't terrible, don't get me wrong. And my data wasn't <laughs> awful, it wasn't like terrible, but it wasn't as good as I thought that it was going to be. So there's something about the objectivity of looking at that data specifically about yourself and holding the mirror up to the way in which you consult. So I don't know if that, that probably only answers a very small part of that question of how do we create that spread but I think this, I think at the minute, what's really hard for the workforce with the state that it's at, not feeling there's not enough of them, there's a capacity issue, there's a bandwidth issue for, you know, want of a better expression. Like it takes a certain headspace and certain conditions by which to really be able to hold the mirror up and think, is there something I can do differently um, versus it's everything else around me that's the reason why I'm, I'm I feel, so there's, there's, it's a really, it's a really tricky one. So I've only answered that from my perspective. So it's only kind of a part of that. No, I think that's, I think it's really, really helpful. I was going to say we're all in the same boat. We're not all, I mean, we are all in the same boat, but we're not all in the same position on the boat. And I think I meet people that are as busy as the next person, but they, they've got a different mindset around how they approach their work. Uh, we've all got different mindsets and I think it's helpful to think is there anything that I can do because there are certain things that are beyond our control so if we're waiting for something to change you're waiting yeah. and waiting and waiting and it becomes more frustrating more frustrating more frustrating so it, I suppose it's very it's a very personal motivation around why you come to work and what you want to deliver it's tricky. And so I don't have any grand, amazing answers, contrary to maybe what I should do in terms of the nature of my role. But other than knowing what the barriers are to really bringing that to life requires almost an ethnographic transformational change. How do you make change happen thing? And really personalized care shouldn't be a change. It should, it should just be what we do. But if people are unaware how close to delivering personalized care they are or not, that that objectivity of that data can be really jolting and that can either make someone feel um, they want to bury their head in the sand about it or make them motivated to think and understand themselves about what's in their locus of control about what can I do, what can I control, what can I influence and frankly what the rest of it that I'm powerless against. Um, but I suppose uh, I would also argue um, as somebody that is a recipient of the policies and directives and not everybody that listens to this podcast is in primary care but you know I'm aware of the personalized care institute the content on there is really easy to navigate it's really easy to understand um the kind of the direction in the des is really well written so it's like how do you inspire you make it really easy and accessible um, as easy as it can there is time to get people trained and I think even though you I've asked you to do this podcast because I want to get to know you I suppose leaders taking their time to speak to people like me and be on social media makes it more accessible so whilst that may not be like a grand I mean a comm strategy around how do you make this stuff accessible I'm asking you questions and it's like you know, I'm, how do I make it as simple as possible? So I think I wouldn't under, when I say how to inspire, I don't expect, I don't know, you know, like a carnival. 
<laughs> I think, you know, like it's how you, it's little, it's delivering the message in multiple ways, in different ways, but consistently all of the time. And from a primary care network perspective, you know, we I understand the role of the social prescriber, understand all of the roles. And it's super, it's like I put my parent hat on or my patient hat on. And I think this is why it's important because I've got kids and they've got long-term conditions and I've got healthcare challenges. So I want to go to a clinician, whoever that is, or go to the practice manager and then greet me and me actually not expect there is, it is a middle, not expect this is what I want. You give it to me. It's what, and that's, yeah. And that's, that's I think that we all have to change. Shift. Yeah. And that's that shift in terms of that paternalism at that one end. And, and there are some scenarios by which that paternalistic style is completely right for that person and that's okay and the clinic it's not about the clinicians being fixed in the middle of that it's actually being agile enough to meet someone where they are in the context of that moment of whatever's going on as well you know someone who comes rocks up in an ed who needs critical care i mean i'm not saying that they shouldn't share decision make they absolutely should but there's something about the how that is different in that context which might mean a little bit closer to the more directive style of care but that's completely contextually appropriate so yeah it's it's so interesting isn't it and then this is this is just your opinion so it's not like what is the answer but that raises again the patient expectation of what my care should look like I want more than a longer than a 10 minute appointment. I want to be able to see my healthcare professional around my work commitments and around my family commitments. So that raises a level that at the moment, some areas are really struggling to meet. It's like, then what do we say to the patient and the, and the social prescribing link worker who's got, you know, patient, you know, this huge caseload when they shouldn't have. Do you know what I mean? And I guess my brain's going back to those four barriers to implementing personalized care. And there's something fascinating about, I can't remember her name. I'll find it afterwards. She's done some really interesting ethnographic um, research about what's the sequencing of, so there's the skills of the workforce, trained teams, prepared public, supportive system, and effective commissioning. There's something interesting about the sequencing of, so what order do you do that in? If you train the teams and prepare the public if the commissioning and system infrastructure isn't there to help that they're going to be butting against it constantly and getting really frustrated burnt out etc but the sequencing is really subtle about what's the right order of that and she is is far more literate at being able to describe that than I'm doing now but there's something really interesting of what you're saying there about patient expectations relative to that about that transformational change Mm. and what I feel excited about I mean I know that it's really geeky but like you know the changes that are coming with ICSs is just really exciting because I hope that 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 gives that degree of power control and influence over some of those aspects to bring those four four little aspects of barriers of personalized care into the right sequence at the point of where that system or PCN or practice is at from that moment at that time. Maybe I'm too optimistic. I think it's exciting, but I think it's also, you know, like a mammoth, mammoth, mammoth job to get, I suppose, I mean, we're not here for the mammoth job, but you're here for the challenge Why you wouldn't be in it, are you? What is the most challenging aspect of your role? Being, this is going to sound really weird, but being clear about what my unique value add is versus the breadth of the portfolio. So there might be lots of things that I'd be interested in and good at doing and helping, but actually I have a team of people who are there to do that. So recognizing my role as orchestrator or 
convener of the team to deliver against the vision versus there's some stuff that I'm really good at and I'm going to do it. Um, recognizing that boundary and being not too fixed in my mind about it. Yeah. That's probably my biggest challenge because the breadth is big and things change. And then there's things that I'd like to do. So it's trying to reconcile all of that. And which sounds a little bit of a selfish answer and I don't mean for it to, but there's something a bit about how I manage my own energy and my time, given the breadth of the, the nature of the work. But how do you manage who leads on what? Me and my director. Yeah. Um, we're really clear on scope. We have, it's maybe really nerdy, but like in the long-term plan, we had the implementation strategy for personalized care that we that was public, that we published um, not long after that. So I'm really clear about my portfolio scope and even the numbers of like what those actions are. Um, and then there are some areas that it's not quite that simple. It's like someone's leading and someone's supporting, but being really clear about that from the outset and being open to that changing as well. Okay. So that really helps. So just some open conversations, real clarity, a bit of nerdiness. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, I wanted to ask, have you experienced any cultural challenges from coming over to the States to then working within the NHS? Yeah. Could <laughs> you share? So do you mean as a person or I'm working in healthcare or both? Both. So in healthcare, the US healthcare system is different than the UK. I've So in the UK, I've worked in private practice for myself. I've worked in private hospitals and I've worked in the NHS. I've also provided oversight to occupational health services, which is quite, which is different as well. So I have some awareness of that. In the US, um, because so much of healthcare delivery is private um, and funded through um, insurance companies, et cetera, and the mechanisms for that being really different. Although there are other parts to that system, but because it's predominantly privatized, um, that creates a really different patient expectation or demand on services in terms of that continuum of paternalism and consumerism, in my opinion. So, um, and then there's also something about the culture of Americans being different than the culture of the British public. So there's something about that too. So it's something about cultures and there's something about the system within which I'm I was operating that felt really jarring, is too strong. It, it, I just, I felt that difference moving here. And that was interesting to consider how I'd uh, navigate that. I need more, I need it, I need more. <laughs> so in the US, if someone needed physiotherapy for say, I don't know, a torn ACL ligament in their knee, they would come to physiotherapy from having seen a doctor probably seen a surgeon, decided that that was the right thing to do, told how many appointments they were going to have, told what interventions they were going to have, and then you would just execute that. I say just, that makes it undermines it a little yep. bit, but it, you know, it, was, it was very directive. And then if you wanted more, you had to apply to their healthcare insurance company to request more, et cetera. Here, and, 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 and the people and the clinicians are very used to working in that way, largely. Um, in my experience when I was working there. Um, whereas here, when I moved, I remember my, one of my first um, few weeks in the UK working in outpatients in MSK, seeing that same patient, same sort of patient with the same injury, same age, same contextual circumstance. It was like, just rehab them. So there was a little bit, there was more free reign, I think, in terms of what we were able to do regarding autonomy of the profession of physiotherapy because of that infrastructure. Um, so that was really different. 
so figuring out like, oh, wait a minute, I, I have control and agency around like how I decide how I do this to a degree. And I'm, and, and I'm not trying to undermine the American healthcare system by, by describing it that way, but it, it did feel really different to have that kind of, so both the burden and the benefit of having that agency, that was a blessing and a curse at the same time. Okay, that, no, that does make sense. And actually I was thinking we, we do have quite a few listeners from the state and you as a person so when thinking of you from the states you come over uh, you've got a different accent how is that received or does it is it, it it's not anything yeah I do um I I also think my accents got very um blurred over time as well it's not quite as strong as it used to be strongly strongly American although I'll be back in the U.S. in August for two weeks and then if you'd interviewed me then then uh, my accent would have been much broader then um so uh yeah it, it definitely from in work and where I live and in life people ask me where I'm from very often and when people ask you where you're so somebody so somebody and most people well maybe not most I'm black so people will say to me like where are you from and I'll be like oh, I live in I live in I live in Whitstable and they'll be like, no, where are you from? Yeah, I, um, when people ask me where I'm from, I, I say Newcastle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they're like, no, where are you from? And I'm like, do you mean where, uh, where my original nationality? <laughs> you know, so um, I've over time had to consider what that, my answer to that is. When there's a uh, racial related reason for that, I can't imagine how that must feel because that's a, a really different answer that I can't relate to personally, but I can in the context of being asked the know where are you from from thing. Does it bother you? No, because there over time what I've probably grown to do is say, are you asking because of my accent? <laughs> or are you just generally trying to like place me in the geography of England, like on teams and things like that. So um, it, it doesn't bother me that much. Okay. But I, what, what does bother me is that the same line of questioning can mean really different things for different people. That bit bothers me. So it does kind of, there's a rub to that question that I don't like, not because of what I've experienced, but because the same question asked to a, someone with slightly different characteristics. Than yeah. me, that same exact question, maybe with the same intent or maybe a different intent could land really differently. So there is a bit of it that bothers me, but not directly because of me, if that makes okay. sense. Yeah, that does make sense. Okay, a couple more questions and we'll wrap up. To help us understand what you do, can you give us a snapshot of your diary this week? Cool, so this week, it was bank holiday on Monday, um, uh, but I didn't work on the Monday. Tuesday, we started the week with a huddle up of all the colleagues in personalized care just to share some key messages. It's a lovely start to the week. Um, that was led by James Sanderson, our director, which is lovely, really nice tempo to the week. I then had a number of different meetings with different stakeholders about our policy commitments, um, answered some emails about some issues that clinicians were having in earwax removal services and trying to help them find the right person to help with the problem that they were describing. Um, I signed off some board minutes. I had some one-to-ones with some colleagues in my team. I have one of my direct reports is on leave. So um, I was checking in on her teamies to see if they were all okay. 
whilst she was off, I had an away day on Thursday, like a strategic planning type day with our senior management team on Thursday in London. So that was really cool. That was like the first time that I've got to see everybody face to face because we haven't been able to get together um, because of the you know travel restrictions and the pandemic, et cetera. So that was amazing, but a very long day because it's like a leave the house at six in the morning, get home at nine, 10 o'clock at night kind of thing. Um, and that was yesterday. And then today um, I've been catching up on varying different, you know, reflecting back on the week, looking at um, because we're sort of midway through, I'm having to just double check on a few of our deliverables and things that we should said we do and where are we at with those and chasing up a few things. And then later this afternoon, I'm meeting with the chief exec of a health charity who we can catch up about things that we can do to support each other's work. So really full week. Yeah, good fun. Cool. And when it comes to decision making in the NHS, what do you wish the public or your colleagues and peers would better understand? Such a good question. Can you say it again? When it comes to decision making in the NHS, what do you wish our patients, maybe colleagues and peers could better appreciate? That it's hard and it's complicated and that um, there are always things that we can do differently, but there's a lot of things that, are, that go right for the right reasons. Um, and not everything might be as it seems in terms of how complicated that might be. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate it. Oh, no problem. Thank you for having me. so much for joining us if you like what you hear I would absolutely love it if you left us an iTunes rating and five star review I know many of you give us a shout out on social media which is lovely to see you guys listening to the podcast so please come and find us on Twitter at THC Primary Care on Instagram and on LinkedIn just look for Tara Humphrey and if you're not subscribed to our newsletter please do you get to hear more insights more confessions some tips and tools and a roundup of our activity over the week so click on join the newsletter in the show notes and I will see you in the next episode.